to the Cover 2 PPT podcast series, a podcast series about people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Last month, I got an email from a Scottish company called 1A Productions that had just released The Final Fix. They said it was a documentary we think you'll be interested in seeing. It's about a treatment methodology for addiction that has been in existence for over 45 years, but relentlessly shunned by the medical establishment. It's narrated by Ewan McGregor. The final fix follows five people who have all experienced the devastating effects of long-term opioid use disorder as they trial this unique non-pharmacological treatment for addiction known as NET, and that's neuroelectric therapy. The NET device was invented by a Scottish surgeon by the name of Dr. Meg Patterson and claims to take people off their drug of choice within five to seven days with minimal discomfort and no future cravings. The film profiles those five patients who are from Louisville, Kentucky, as they put their faith in this unproven methodology in the hopes of reclaiming their lives. Needless to say, their email piqued my interest. So I looked at this BBC News clip that they provided. And a drug addiction treatment pioneered by a Scottish doctor is being tested in the US. The US government agency responsible for public health research is preparing to begin robust testing of an anti-addiction treatment pioneered by a Scots doctor more than 40 years ago. It's a major step forward for neuroelectrical treatments, or NET, and comes as the growing crisis of drugs deaths will be the focus later this week of two conferences in Glasgow. Our social affairs correspondent Reval Alderson reports. A BBC documentary in the 70s highlighted the work of Scots doctor Meg Patterson. She developed a new technique to treat addiction based on the theory of acupuncture when she was working in Hong Kong. Well, then I was very, very hopeful that it was going to be the answer for the drug problem. Now I'm convinced it is, because in the past four years, I've improved my techniques enormously. Since 1997, the drugs problem worldwide has spiralled out of control. In America, more deaths than the Vietnam War. Here, year-on-year, record-breaking totals. The solution could be deceptively simple. Drug addicts, who would ordinarily be seeking a fix now, are fitted with two tiny electrodes to stimulate the pain-combating endorphins, which addiction has destroyed. Five days into this American experiment, the addicts treated are all free of cravings with no withdrawal symptoms. It's taps that are quick, but it's not shocking me. Um, you know, I'm not like you know, twitching or anything weird. I mean, it's just uh, uh, it's a pulse that's just constantly going in the back of my head. Filmmaker Norman Stone has been following Net since his first documentary more than 40 years ago, and believes he knows why it's been ignored. If you are a pharmaceutical company and making billions of dollars a year, 
and this comes along to <clears throat> really rain on your pitch, you're not going to particularly want it. The pharmaceutical companies are best friends with people that they would all like to maintain the system as it is. The state of Kentucky has America's highest drugs death rate. Its governor's impressed with net, less so with pharma companies. They claim to be health care companies. And look, look at what has happened based on their products. I mean, I know that companies ultimately per think they pursue the bottom line or the stock price, but we all are supposed to have a soul somewhere. Six folks had a good shot. In 2007, the then First Minister saw NET in action, but there was no government cash. It's hoped this film will stimulate new debate about a simple, cheap, successful option to reduce addiction. Reval Alderson, Reporting Scotland. Well, that seemed pretty credible to me. So I dug a little deeper, and I came across Dr. Meg Patterson's obit, crediting neuroelectric therapy for successfully treating rock and roll icon Eric Clapton, and then Pete Townsend, next Keith Richards, and finally Boy George. And I began to wonder how it's possible this treatment has been around for 45 years. They've used it to treat celebrities successfully, and most people don't even know that it exists. So today, we're going to explore NET with my guests, Mark LaPalm, who's the CEO of the Isaiah House, where the neuroelectric trial took place. We'll also talk with Robert Capley, who is one of five participants in the program. In the film, there's a doubting clinician who came over to the Isaiah House to witness the trial. Well, he's also going to join us today to share with us his perspective on what he witnessed. His name is Matt LaRocco. He's a former Louisville Health Department syringe exchange clinician and treatment specialist. And finally, we'll talk with award-winning BBC film producer Norman Stone, who produced The Final Fix. He'll share with us his thoughts on the film and why he felt so compelled this unproven treatment method that he decided to pay for production of the film out of his own pocket. We begin with Mark LaPalm, CEO of the Isaiah House, where the neuroelectric therapy study was held and filmed for the final fix. Addiction is a chronic um, and oftentimes relapsing disease, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it, it's also not, it doesn't, you know, some of the words that get around is it resets your brain. Um, it doesn't reset your brain. Um, it doesn't give you job skills. It doesn't give you relational skills. It doesn't teach you how to wake up every morning and work your program and work your recovery, right? Um, so as Robert's story will go, and I don't want to tell Robert's story, but he had, um, the fortitude and the mindset that I don't want to go back to what I came from. And so I'm going to surround myself with a healthy community. So he went from one healthy community at Isaiah house to another healthy community. Um, well, not quite that way. It's his story and I'll let him tell it. But uh, he went into another healthy community, which has helped him be sober now for two, almost two years. So, so let's do that. Let's, uh, yeah. Mark, let's go ahead and pivot over to yeah. Robert. Yeah. Robert, tell us your story. You were one of the participants in the study that was profiled in the film, in Norman Stone's film, uh, The Final Fix. You were one of five participants that were profiled and followed all the way through the program. Um, let's start kind of at the beginning. Give us a sense for your drug of choice 
and your struggles. I understand that you've attempted uh, recovery a number of times. What yeah. did that look like? So um, I'll give you just a little bit of a backstory. Um, so uh, I'm born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I'm now 30 years old. Um, in high school, I experimented with drinking and smoking pot, um, kind of the norm thing to do, I guess you could say, in a bigger city. Um, when I went to college at age 19, um, I went to my first frat party, and that is where I was exposed to methamphetamine. Um, so at the age of 19, um, I began using um, the harder solicited drugs, and um, from there, it was an endless spiral. Um, from 19 to 28, um, I had multiple attempts to getting clean. I was involved in drug court programs. I was involved in outpatient programs. I did suboxone clinics. Um, I was in therapy. Um, I literally tried every possible avenue to get clean. Um, and I just could not get right. Um, from 19 to 23, uh, methamphetamine was my drug of choice. Um, at the age of 24, I was introduced to heroin um, in the club scene, I guess you could say. And um, from 24 to 28, um, so for four solid years, I did heroin every single day, all day. My entire day was consumed um, with getting the fix, basically. Fast forward a little um, to the age of 28. Um, in May of 2018, um, I lost everything in a matter of days. Um, I totaled two cars within two weeks, um, both because of using, um, I lost my job. I lost my family. I got kicked out of my parents' house. Um, none of my friends wanted to be around me. Um, I had literally hit rock bottom. Um, I was living in a cardboard box on the roof of a Rite Aid, which is a convenience store. Um, Literally. Here in, in Lexington. Cardboard box. Yes, wow. sir. And um, I would walk behind the building um, late at night and the ladder up to the roof uh, didn't have a lock on it. So I would climb up the ladder and sleep on top of the roof at night so no one would bother me. And then during the day, I would sure. climb back down so no one would see me. But I yeah. literally slept on a cardboard box and mm -hmm. used my shirt as a pillow. Up to this point, Robert, how many times had you attempted recovery treatment? You know, I'd be lying to you if I told you that actual number. Um, I would say on an offhand, at least 15 different facilities and probably got tried to get clean over 20 times. Wow. Okay. So um, it was a struggle. You know, I would... I would do really well for a little while, maybe a month or two, and then um, I would fall right back into the bad uh, old habits and just uh, fall right back to where I was. And, um, you know, I would fall even harder every single time and I'd get good for a little bit and then I'd fall even harder. And um, so. So obviously this experience has been quite a bit different. Yes. How has it differed from those other 20 attempts? So uh, for me, the, one of the main reasons that I never wanted to get clean, or at least uh, it took so long, is um, I had complete fear of withdrawal. Um, I was so scared of the pain that my body would endure going through a withdrawal that um, I would scare myself away from treatment. Um, 
even doing the treatment and going through the withdrawal, you know, after uh, three to seven days, you know, even though the technical withdrawal uh, physical effects are over, the mental effects are still there. So I would be sober physically, but mentally my brain was still tricking me to use. Um, so it, it was a constant battle between my heart and my brain of trying to get sober. And, um, it was a lot different coming to the NET device. So for you, the challenge was even after detox, your brain was still telling you to use. Yes. And that's not uncommon for with um, opioid dependence. Oftentimes they say it takes 18 months or more for the brain to stabilize. So right. how has NET changed that, your recovery utilizing uh, this therapy? Why was that different? We, um, they say this a lot with the, the net device, but I, I truly believe in it. Um, we take net device takes away the craving and gives back choice. Um, ultimately it is the person's choice, um, to stay sober and clean and to live a healthy lifestyle. Um, uh, the net device truly changed my outlook. So not only, um, was the net device completely successful with withdrawal, um, if you've seen the film, The Final Fix, you can see I had absolute zero withdrawals, no nausea, no headache. I was able to sleep. I was able to eat. I was able to be up and walking. Uh, and that was the same with uh, the other participants in the program. Five started the program, four finished it out. And for the four that finished it out, they had the very same experience. Were they cherry picked? Were you guys cherry picked for that, you know, to have that outcome? And that's probably no. not a fair question to ask you. I should probably be asking Mark that question. I don't see Mark. Maybe Mark slipped away for a second. We have no idea. Um, Y'all you, you don't get to see a lot of the behind the scenes. You know, we were in a dorm room together and, you know, we're, we're putting this device on and we're like, you know, what did we sign up for? What is this? And why do we feel so good in such a short amount of time? I mean, within 20 minutes, um, you can literally see us like stand up straight and you can literally like feel the breath coming back into your lungs. It's so indescribable about how it just changed our overall uh, demeanors. Um, but it was truly, it was truly great. And um, it, the net device not only helped with the withdrawal for me, um, but it really helped with, the brain receiving those electrons and those signals of not using. So that craving that, that I just spoke about, that desire to my brain telling me to continue to use even after getting clean um, was pretty much diminished completely. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was almost too, I say it's out of this world. It just literally like, just kind of floated away. It was really cool. I don't really know how to describe it because uh, it just happened so, so quickly. Traditional recovery is either abstinence or medication-assisted treatment-based combined with equal parts of meetings, peer support, and spiritual guidance. So in the movie, um, neuroelectric therapy is presented as just one thing. 
and the only thing that's kind of required. Mark, you alluded to this, but I'd, I'd like you both to comment on that, on the importance of these other things um, when they're put on the backdrop of that treatment of net. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on it super quickly. Um, so for me, like Mark had said earlier, um, after leaving the Isaiah house, um, I had some criminal things to take care of. So I actually ended up doing six months within the Fayette County Detention Center. And um, that's another point in that movie that I, everybody in the movie that was watching the movie that was, uh, you know, uh, emotionally invested, expected yeah. that, that that P test was going to come out the wrong way. Yeah. And, and sorry, the spoiler alert for those that haven't seen it. Um, so, but that was, that was really a good surprise. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. So, um, but what you touched on, um, after, uh, doing the net device and after getting out of jail, um, I personally realized that I needed, uh, continual support within the recovery community. So I opted to go to a sober living facility, um, which was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life. Um, I actually just graduated that program um, about a month ago now. Well, congratulations. Um, thank That's you. Terrific. I there for a year and um, it was the best thing for me. So um, getting sober is important, but what I want people to realize is that, um, and you don't actually see this in the film, um, we did have classes throughout the day and we did have peer support and therapist time and uh, group activities and um, a lot of things that went alongside the actual device. And that's what uh, the Isaiah House is really, um, really stands for, um, not only for the faith base, but also for the continual education of treatment. Um, so it's very important for me that even though I did the treatment, that I continue to stay engaged in the recovery community. So. Um, I am involved with, uh, with AA, I'm involved with peer support, I'm involved with volunteer hours, um, and really surrounding my entire life and encompassing it into recovery. Um, all, both the jobs that I work are in recovery. Um, all of my friends today are in recovery. Um, so it's really important to make sure that they continually stay engaged, whether through activities, or therapy, or classes, or continual education, whatever it may be. Mark, you know, very quickly, same question. Yeah, when I get somebody that comes in, our average client is about 35 years old. They've been using for 15 plus years. They've destroyed everything in their life, right? And so to think that putting a device on uh, for five to eight, eight, nine, 10 days is just gonna magically make everything all better that's going to set yourself up for failure. What it does is it provides you an easier pathway to get into treatment and recovery. And so like with Robert's story, one of the things Robert had known about was that the detox part is the worst part, right? Who wants to suffer um, their way through treatment? And so this makes the, you know, the, the beginning days of treatment a lot more tolerable. And it also, for me as a, as a provider, gives me a client who is more ready to hear what I've got to say quicker, right? Instead of waiting two weeks or three weeks as they go through multiple phases of acute withdrawal, I've got somebody in three days that I have their, I have their attention, right? They are um, fully aware 
of what's going on in their um, relational at that point. Normally at day seven or day 10 in, in my withdrawal, the last thing I want is relational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like, you man, get away from me, dude. Everybody get away from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Huh. So it's crucial that, you know, when we talk about treatment, Greg, sometimes you'll hear, well, I went to treatment. Well, what, what phase of treatment did you go through? Well, I went to detox. Well, that's a phase of treatment, right? Then I went to, then he, then he went to the next phase for, for Robert was that transitional living. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know that Robert wouldn't be sober today. I, I really don't. He, he changed people, places, and things, yeah. right? And, Amen. And, and he got committed to his recovery. And it's, it's, a, it's a testimony to both, right? Net got him to that point. It allowed him to get to that point, but Robert did the rest of the work. And along the way, somehow you, you learned about this net study over at the Isaiah house. And what made you want to check that out? Well, I talked to Norman uh, with 1A Productions for a while about, about the, net, the net device, and, and it kind of perked my interest. I was somewhat skeptical, obviously, having met with people for, for years who struggled with addiction and, and watched just the challenges people had with withdrawing um, and, and just this idea that their, their cravings would be limited was just a, something that I thought, well, it's, it's great if it can happen, um, but obviously some skepticism. I guess the other part of me, uh, while I understand why there would be certainly um, would be reasons for pharmaceutical industry and other people to lobby against uh, this type of device being available. And I also kind of said, man, if this thing is able to do what they're claiming it can do, surely that, that somebody somehow, some way would have found a way to get this um, into the public market. If it really was this effective, um, the, because of what we're dealing with and, and with the opioid epidemic that we're seeing, um, that, that somebody would have done something to make sure that this happened, that this wouldn't have been. The, I know the pharmacy lobby, the pharmaceutical lobby is powerful, but I would, I would like to think certainly not powerful enough, or at least at that point, certainly not powerful enough to keep something like this under wraps. So that compelled you to go and check it out for yourself. You yeah, did that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, here we are a couple of years later. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I've had the one the one opportunity um, at Isaiah House to see and, and to visit a couple times there and to see that process. I, I was able to go with my good good buddy Dr. Chipley, um, who's far more uh, wise and educated than I am on the the actual the mechanisms of the brain and and whatnot. Um, and from from seeing it kind of firsthand um, and and also being there with Dr. Chipley and seeing it, it was pretty impressed. You know, we saw people. Uh, two or three days into to opiate withdrawal, the expectation would be at that point that people are going to, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, low levels of energy. Uh, they were going to have, you know, restless muscle spasms, cramping, um, no appetite. I mean, you name it. You just you, you expected to see somebody in bed. Typically, what you're going to see at that point is somebody in bed, especially with no medications on board to help. Uh, and and we saw people like walking around and smiling and talking and bright eyed and engaged and not sick and talking about eating lunch. It was not something, you know, they talked about what they had for dinner the night before. And that's typically not something we're going to hear from somebody two or three days into withdrawal, especially not with, with the amount of, of opioids that some of these, some of these guys were using would not have expected to see them looking well, feeling well, 
uh, and especially eating. I, I told, we, I talked to Dr. Chipley about it. I said, you know, there's a lot of things that you can fake uh, when it comes to opioid withdrawal that you can, you can kind of make things. I think sometimes our brain is powerful and I'll talk to our patients about how um, one of the, the fears that they have with, with withdrawal is not that the first 12 hours, 24 hours are not that bad, uh, but knowing what's coming in the two or three days later can make that first 24 hours worse than it is because they know what's about to come. Um, and you know, so you, your, your mind has the ability to intensify the experience of, of, of pain and discomfort. Uh, it's a really, it's, it's more difficult for your mind to fool your GI tract into nausea, vomiting and diarrhea, that, that kind of reaction. Uh, and it's also very difficult to get your mind to stop that from happening as well. Um, and, and to see that not happening to see that the GI discomfort and the GI issues not be there. To me, that was kind of the, the thing that stood out to me the most of, of all the things that you can control. This is the thing you can't control and, and we're not seeing it happen. And that was pretty, that, I think that in and of itself pretty much sold me. People today think of MAT medication assisted treatment as the gold mm-hmm. standard, right? People are having much more success across the country, uh, less relapsing uh, through MAT. Um, I, as I think about net, I think that that allows you to replace that. Actually, you don't, you don't have to have that or how do how do the two play together or are they mutually exclusive in your estimation? Again, you're not, you're not really a clinician, but you work with all these people. You come, I mean, you've got the practical knowledge. Yeah. So did I sum that up? Right. I mean, I'm yeah, right, no, right? Well, I mean, I'm a board certified alcohol and drug counselor. So from that perspective, I'm a clinician. I, I'm okay. not a, I'm not a neuro, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist or, you know, Medical. an addiction medicine specialist yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, my, my approach to recovery is whatever works for you is what you should do if it works best for you. And so you might find, um, I don't think obviously that, that net and, and medication are going to work together because taking those medications while you're on the net device messes up that process. That, that's obviously not going to be helpful. Yeah. Um, that's what I thought. I, I, I look at them as mutually exclusive. That, in that they can't be done at the same time, but you right. might find that, you know, so for instance, uh, the net device might be beneficial for somebody who uh, needs to transition to Suboxone. And so we talk about, you know, so for some people here, here's the reality. There are people that probably could go on this net device uh, and, and, taper off, you know, be fine. And I, I really would love to see long-term brain imaging be, uh, and, and looking at the parts of the brains that are associated with cravings to see, you know, what, cause we don't really know the mechanism, uh, the, the, the mechanism that is affected. That is, is, is the biggest claim to me that net makes isn't the withdrawal symptom part. It's they're saying that it eliminates craving or severely reduces craving to me. And that's the bigger piece of the of the the conversation and, and what they need to prove the withdrawal part I saw that firsthand the craving part you really need brain imaging to to prove that out um, there are going to be people that could go through that process and physiologically if if the net device does what it's supposed to do physiologically on a neuro on, on a neurochemical level they're not going to have craving for opiates be, or other drugs because they're not in their system. Um, Psychologically, behaviorally, there's there's certainly a group of people that are still going to crave use. And so for some people, um, the act of taking that medication every day, they're going to need to do it. Uh, they're, they're just that mentally far into the process. Um, and so 
the net device might be a great option for people that are using large amounts of opiates and have to wait for multiple days to transition to Suboxone. I think about like, for instance, our patients on methadone, you'll have patients that will taper off of methadone and when they get to a certain point, really struggle with that taper, but might effectively taper off Suboxone, right? And so you, you typically in a, in a methadone taper, you get somebody to 30 milligrams, you stop them for 72 hours, and then you start them on Suboxone. Well, 72 hours coming off of 30 milligrams of methadone is hell. I mean, it is, a, it, is a, it is a physically and emotionally, mentally, psychologically painful experience. If the net device could address those withdrawal symptoms for three days to help that person transition to buprenorphine, that'd be great. Um, so do those two things, do they, can you use them in conjunction at the same time? No. Is there a role potentially for that to be a transition onto or off of? Or even the other piece too is if you're on medication assisted treatment, you do have to taper off that medication if you well, want to be some, off of that medication. If you want to be off of the medication. The yeah. yeah, the other you side, don't, side is, is it's a lifelong thing. Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying. If you want to taper off that medication, yeah. okay. you have to go through the process of tapering, right? right. That, that's yeah. rough. Sure. No, I talk to people all the time. They're like, Matt, how long should I be on medications? Like, I have no idea. You'll figure that out. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. for the rest of your life, yep. maybe for a year, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are at a place where you go, I don't want to be on this medication any longer, and, and you're, you feel it's appropriate, your physician feels it's appropriate, you're, you're going to taper off that medication. And when you taper off that medication, it is going to be uncomfortable physically. It's going to be uncomfortable psychologically. And you are going to be at risk during that process for relapse and potentially for overdose as well. And so when I think about it for our patients that are on methadone maintenance or or on on suboxone treatment, they're going, you know what? I think I'm ready to transition off. I think I'm ready to live life without this medication. this is a device that we could use to help them more seamlessly do that process and be successful. Um, because like you said, there are some people they are going to need this medication for the rest of their life. And that's fine. That's great. Fantastic. I don't try to take insulin away from diabetics. I'm not going to take uh, a, a partial or full agonist medication away from someone who struggles with opiate addiction. That's not a good call. But if somebody is ready to stop using that medication for whatever reason and they feel like they're ready to go, this could be a great way to help them with that. And this is a possible also option for people that are in a position where they they do have to be tapered off that medication. People go to jail. We don't use methadone or suboxone. Oftentimes in jail settings, uh, they just just won't use it for multiple reasons. Once again, I don't agree with that, but I don't have the power to change that today. This is another thing we could do so that when somebody is incarcerated, they don't have to be miserable for two weeks or 30 days. I mean, there's some things that we could, there's a lot of different ways that this could be used to improve people's quality of life uh, in in that transition. So I'm, I'm all for um, whatever we can do, uh, and for, especially from a harm reduction perspective, whatever we can do to help people make a positive change that improves the quality of their life, their health, their well-being, or the quality of life of the people in our community, their health and well-being, then we ought to be doing it. You learned about NET through a chance encounter with Eric Clapton back in 1974. Can you speak to that, Norman? Uh, it sounds strange when you say it like that, but it's true. I don't often have chance encounters with uh, Eric Clapton, actually. Um, <laughs> But the lady that discovered this treatment, uh, an award-winning surgeon who was working in a charity hospital in Hong Kong, had a husband. And that husband had made films that I'd heard about uh, in magazines, seen some of them on television. 
And it fascinated me because I was just finishing my film school. So I went to see George, her husband. But around there at the same time was this man who I didn't recognize, um, with a sort of fuzzy Afro haircut and things, and with these two little electric leads coming down um, either side of his head. And we chatted away about everything. Um, and he seemed a nice enough chap. We had tea. Uh, and I went on my way, and I discovered that that was, in fact, Eric Clapton, who had got down to selling his last guitar, and Pete Townsend of The Who, had, who was a friend of his, he tried to get him back for a thing called the Rainbow Concert, those of you who might remember that, and he was just absolutely out of, out of it with drugs. And Pete, who knew about Meg Patterson and had benefited a little in his own way, uh, took Eric along, and Meg said, sure, he can sleep on the sofa, We'll, um, we'll give him the treatment. And that's what was happening. Um, and that began my big interest because I, I was just a film student leaving and I needed a job. And I went to the BBC and I said, um, Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton. And I got my first film, uh, although he didn't appear in it, as it turned out. But it, it was a fascinating, challenging thought that there could be right there in front of us a treatment that could get you off in very short time with no real pain at all and no cravings. And I said to Meg, look, it's all very good and I'm sure you're a nice person, but if this doesn't work, I'm going to show it. And if this does work, I'm going to show it. And that was all those years ago. Um, and it headed off the TV series that had hired me to do this, uh, this film, and it worked. Well, so since that time... Dr. Meg, as she uh, became known as, gained international fame for successfully, as you mentioned, not only treating uh, Pete Townsend, but also Keith Richards and Boy George. So, And many more, I have to say. They're very, very discreet about who was there. But for a while, it was only the rock and roll stars or rather their managers who'd rather earn money from them than watch them dissolve into drug addiction mm -hmm. uh, that brought the, their stars to Meg. Um, and their um, fees, which were fairly reasonable, I thought, um, were the only money coming in for Meg to continue her research. It was the rock and roll stars that enabled this to develop, which was a fascinating film that's never been made. Hmm. So why haven't, hasn't it become more popular? Why haven't we heard about this? Um, well, okay. To be honest, people do not like to disturb a status quo if they're doing very well off the status quo. And it's pride, power, profit, prestige um, that's got in the way. Uh, historically, there's, there's a pattern for this. I mean, um, anesthetic took 30 years to get through and accepted. Um, uh, various other things. Um, penicillin took three, three, 30 years for that. Um, and it's a supposed generational thing. And I fully expected uh, that 30 years in, that they would just get accepted the same way. But there's a difference. There's money involved. Did I say money? There are billions upon billions involved. And if the status quo of the way things work in the addictive system and the FDA and other things as well, if that is going to get upset and billions are going to be lost, some very important people who are making a lot of money, uh, we're on about Purdue Pharma, there are many more, um, then you mustn't be surprised if you don't get the breaks that you think you should. And I've watched this being dismissed, 
uh, unnoticed, refused to be looked at, even to the, the last few months up here in Scotland where I'm speaking to you from, um, the same thing. It is challenging what's doing very well for them, thank you very much. And on the profit side, which is much more American, there's money in misery, did you know that? There's money in misery if, if you actually have got a cure to make people feel better, say a cure, if you, if you can market that, little help to misery, little help to that pain, you can keep that going for as long as you want. And they do. So you learned about it 46 years ago. That and um, now you've, uh, you've had a very, very successful career uh, producer. You've worked with BBC through the years. You've, uh, you've worked with, did I read The Times as well? Um, so anyhow, um, now at this stage, you decided to take this cause on. Why did you decide this so many years down the road? Because I sat here in my lovely little place in Scotland and I kept getting information coming across on the internet and other places that was telling us how bad you were, what a bad time you're having with opioids. Uh, that's when it began back in 2017. And we didn't have a problem so much with opioids at that time. And I thought, for goodness sake, why doesn't someone do something about the NET treatment that is still getting smashed away, pushed away, sidetracked. Why doesn't someone do something about that? And then I realized I probably knew more about it than other filmmakers. And I needed this like a hole in the head. I was doing dramas. And I thought, blow, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna have to do this. But if I were to going to do it, I, I was determined to say, look, if I've been even slightly duped in this, if my other films have missed the point, if there were cracks in the foundations, if something's not right, if I do this, I'm going to have to take it fully on the chin and really go for it. And indeed we did. We ran our own trial. We, uh, we asked everything we could. We were completely free of any connection with NET. We paid our way through. Um, and I warned them again. I said, look, if I find something here, guys, I'm going to show it because I'm fed up of just sitting here and watching the world go to hell in a handbasket. And if this is right, then we should know about it. But I'm going to be tough. So just to confirm, there's no financial interest, no connection whatsoever to the organization. You said this is something that needs to be profiled. We need to study this and more people need to know about this. And we need yeah. to determine whether this is true or false, whether this is snake oil or whether this is something that really is going to help those and save some lives. So That's right. you put together a study in Louisville, Kentucky. Tell us about that. Well, it seemed the only thing to do if you were going to be that tough was to actually turn the cameras on, get up close and personal with a group of people. <laughs> now, I didn't have much money because I hadn't made it into a commission with the BBC or anything. These days, you have an awful lot of executive producers. You have vested interests somewhere around. I had no skin in the game with NET. Still don't. Still don't want it. I want to be an observer. But when you go in there and uh, if you take a commission with the BBC, there could be eight or nine executive producers telling you what to do, what to say. That's these days. And you're not, not in your own uh, director's chair, chair in the way you were. So I wanted to be completely free to tell the truth as I saw it. So I took some small investments from friends of mine who like my work, and we scraped through on little money. It looks like it spent an awful lot of money on it. We spent an awful lot of time, two and a half years. I was serious about this. I wanted to say, what's, what's the problem? What is mm -hmm. there, or if it isn't there, what's stopping it? All the questions you ask. Mm -hmm. And I made the film. 
So what was, well, first of all, the success of it. I mean, you started off with uh, five people that were participants in this study. Four of them made it through successfully. And um, what would, how would you phrase or sum up their success and the success in general of NET based upon what you've witnessed? Well, first of all, let me say that the guys that come through and came up, I mean, all of them, in fact, were, I didn't want anything up my sleeve like a magician. I didn't want to touch them. I didn't even want to choose the people that were there. So I got people in a research trip I'd found, an EMS lady, a judge. I said, look, send someone, send someone. I can only afford um, a very limited number of people because of insurance and the cost, and I had mm. to hire the whole thing in and so on. So they did. I didn't know any of them from Adam when they turned up, and, and that was fine. The one guy who didn't make it through is a tragic story, um, and he uh, left the treatment uh, center because he'd smuggled drugs in, which is the one thing you cannot do if you're going to do a straightforward um, analysis of what's, what's going on. You can't have mm -hmm. people hiding drugs in the same dormitory as some of the guys that are hooked on the same drugs and so on. So that sure. actually ended up. Compromising everyone in the program. Yeah. And he knew that. That was the thing to, that we made clear to start off with. So mm -hmm. that became a tragedy in a way. And oh, yeah. more than uh, But the guys that stayed, the four, I mean, I had seen this thing work before, remember? Right. But I don't think I've ever seen it work. They've been working on it for ages. They've been improving on this sort of thing. I don't think I've ever seen it work so strikingly as this one. I mean, there's Kevin, uh, who is a farmer from East Kentucky. He was a ghost when I first met him, hobbling around, um, absolutely smitten and beaten by, in his case, that, at that point, it was Suboxone. Um, Five days later, without a hiccup or a tickle of pain, nothing. He, he, he says, I'm, that's it, me. I'm fine. Yeah, I feel great. Never felt this good for ages. And that's what you think, two things. You think, wow, look at his face. And when you film it, you see what you see. And it's extraordinary. The same with the others. And when you think, well, off they go. Um, I wonder if that will last. It has. They're still fit as fleas, as we say over here, and, and doing really, well, really well. I mean, it's like reinflated people. And there was one guy, Robert Capley. Um, he was the last one to join. He talked well. He was a bright lad, but completely messed up on, on, on drugs. Heroin was his drug of choice. And he got off. Seven days, he looks like a sports fan I mean, or a star. He's, he's, I don't know how he did it. He even looked suntanned. It was crazy. In seven days, he's sitting there full of life, eyes sparkling, the whole thing there, not having any cravings, not having any pain. And he goes off to get his life straight. And he did it properly. He, he, he signed in with a support group at a, a church in Lexington. And he was going to do this. And he bought all the materials and the books and this. On his second day, an old... Um, Charge. A colleague, yeah, a guy who he'd known in the drug-taking days, which was only a week or so ago, spotted him and let the police know he was around because he had two um, warrants out for his arrest for things he'd done very badly, left a car crash, dealing in drugs and so on. And the police came and arrested him. Day two, the guy has hardly had time to turn around and he goes into a jail that, with no joke, I've been there a few times now, um, 
it runs on drugs, uh, effectively. The, the, the inmates run on drugs. And the worst I, thing I, that could have possibly gotten, the worst thing that possibly could have happened to him after just getting out of the program. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I was a realist rather than an optimist. And I said, oh, that's the saddest thing. Out. He'd done so well. I know where he was going. And I was doing, I was over here in, uh, in Scotland and I just heard this about it. And I thought, goodness me, you know, that's a really bad turn. Yeah. As it happened also, I had to turn up again to do more filming in Kentucky three months later. And it so happened again that he was just coming up for review. His case is coming up for review. And I got permission just to get inside the courtroom and see him get, well, he was on, on parole. He wasn't going back to jail, which was unbelievable. Now, the question was, this is a gift for a filmmaker. I'll be out there. It was a freezing cold night, I remember, in Lexington. And uh, he came bouncing out of there with his summer shorts on because he'd been arrested when it was hot. Um, <laughs> Shivering a little, uh, but he was absolutely dancing around. Now, you can imagine that to a point. He's free. Hey, he's going to be fun. Question was, had he taken anything in there? Well, of course he had. He must have done. But everyone shouts, oh, well done, Robert. Yay. And I got a drug test and an ex-addict who was very tough on this stuff, he, he, a pee test. Um, he took him into the loo of his mum's house, in the toilet of his mum's house, uh, they got the test. We all thought, mm-hmm. And he came out pure and clean as ever. He had not taken in that jail. Now, I don't know how you work that out. He had um, absolutely no support. Yeah, it's amazing. Emotional, because it was, it, that guy was absolutely left alone. And the thing worked. The thing stays. He's, he's now a qualified drug worker. He's got certificates and everything doing on. And you captured that whole scene in uh, The Final Fix. And uh, that was compelling because, you know, your audience expected a completely different outcome and uh, a bit of relief there for everybody and uh, happiness for, uh, for Robert. So what happens next? What happens mm -hmm. next? We try to get people to see the film. Now, you may have noticed there's a bit of a lockdown going on, certainly mm -hmm. in Britain. It's not that my industry, the film mm -hmm. and TV industry, has um, frozen up, stopped still, and it's pretty much the same in America. So I need to get a sales and distribution company on board, or I need to get it uh, on a platform, or I need to get it on uh, maybe the BBC, which, which I trust uh, to, to do that, because I just want people to see it. Yes, of course, I'd like to pay back the very kind people who gave a little bits of money to get this made. But the prime thing is to get it seen and talked about, not mm -hmm. just because it's a film and it's a good film, uh, but because for years people, and still they'll say, why haven't I heard about this? Quite right. Why haven't they? It's been out there, but it's had no following when the governments or the authorities that are the, the experts in the drug addiction, certainly in, in Scotland, I know this firsthand, um, they'd rather sit on it and push it to one side because their policies are you can never get off in Scotland. You can never get off your drugs. So just feed them more drugs. That's the only way through. This rains on their pitch a little, I think you could say. <laughs> it really does head in the other direction, which I thought in my early years, science was wonderful and open-minded. Wouldn't it be great for discussing it and looking at it and trying this and trying that? People tend to solidify with power. They don't like people to dissolve. So the, what is next? Me getting this out there to see. People who are um, involved in this podcast at the other end are going to be saying, 
is this nuts or is this really well? Look at it. I mean, I'm not doing an advert, but it is available on um, to, to see uh, on Amazon. Um, Dot com. Uh, it, it's for sale or rent. It isn't part of the Amazon deal, sadly. It's for sale or rent, but it's cheap. And mm-hmm. people should just spread this word around. If that happens, then good things might happen further. I'm not leading a, 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 a major charge saying, oh, yes, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Uh, all I'm saying is, couldn't we look at this, please? Couldn't someone do a random control trial? Or it'll cost you... $10 million, people say. Look, they, NET doesn't have any. I don't have $10 million. But couldn't people just take their scientific responsibility seriously and look at this thing? It works, and people are dying. So you did a study. You took it upon yourself to do that study in Louisville. What if another community wanted to do a study? What did it take? You'd have to talk to the NET people, who I keep my distance from because I don't want to blow the edges. Um, it would take, I'll tell you what I'd really like, and then I'll get to that. I would really like somewhere like Kentucky, where this has been done, mm-hmm. to say, come one, come all, and let's have a wide, wide random control trial study and see what happens. I mean, I know people in authority in Kentucky now who have been given $2 billion to look at a certain aspect of drug addiction and so on. Just... Get people to this machine, let everyone come in, let the press come in, let anyone, not manipulating the people at all, but let them just come, whoever they are. If this statement is true that they can do this, don't screen them or anything, but just let everyone come. That would be fantastic, but they don't want it to happen. Yeah. Can you speak to some of the hurdles in terms of getting uh, regulatory uh, approval on this, specifically the FDA? I don't know how much I'm allowed to say because I've heard this from the people at the NET, but I will just say back in 1978, I watched Meg Patterson put her first um, application into the FDA. To cut a long and sad story short, they were just twiddling her around their little fingers and changing the rules, and she never got anywhere with that. She tried again two years later and again four years later. They, They make the rules and they stopped whatever it was from going on. Now, lately... This, this is too long a story to get into the podcast, but lately um, I know that they, uh, the NET people have been in touch with the FDA and there is evidence that things have not been exactly straight. Um, they go round in circles, round in circles, just do this and we'll do that. Uh, okay, Joe Winston, the man in charge of uh, NET, said to me, they say one thing and then do the opposite. And that's been his experience. I happen to know that's true. I'm a journalist, but it's just so sad. And why would they do that? I couldn't possibly think. But if you look at some of the people that have recently left the FDA and some of the things that have been going on at the FDA, they are not clean hands over there. I'm sure some people are wonderful. Um, But I've met people and know about people where the reverse is true. There is, okay, there are elements of corruption. And money, big money, does not want the status quo to be changed. And if I die tonight, you'll remember I've said this this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have any specifics that you'd care to share with us, or would you like to just leave it at that? Well, I I think I I literally don't know how much I'm allowed to tell. 
um, because the conversations are ongoing. Mm-hmm. I would just say that if you have something like this and you mean to look at it straight, you mean to absolutely take it seriously, there's no, it's never harmed anyone. It's only worked by peeing people off with a, a remarkable consistency. And that should be enough to take a look. I know that they, they thought, the NET people thought they could get a de novo agreement through, um, which is a machine, a device agreement through, which is not the same as getting full approval. It was the FDA that said, oh, you're just about to get that, but we'd rather help you do other things. We'd rather help you get the big approval. Um, and you, um, they went that way to do it, and they, they changed the goalposts all again. Once the approval they almost had went, they were left stranded by the other one too. I'm not sure whether I was allowed to say that and whether it's just because of accuracy, I've got to be careful. Um, but let me put it a different way in case you want to edit this in. I think some people at the FDA have to look very closely at who they are serving. If they were serving the people who need help, they wouldn't be a-okaying very dangerous drugs with a flick of a pen on a contract within days, while something like this that is no threat and only again is getting the runaround. There's a lot of evidence to back that up, but I'm not in charge of the evidence and other people are. But all I'm saying is, why wouldn't you, if you're the FDA, why wouldn't you want to find out the possibilities of this treatment, which in the film, you see what I saw. I have no skin in the game, as I've said, and I'm an honest Joe reporter. You see what I saw. If that isn't enough to go further, I don't know what is. Public pressure, if they see this film, might get some responses, might get some results but I don't think the FDA is pure from helping rich organizations against the good of the human population of America. Last question. We'll fast forward. Your film is out there and you look back on it years from now. What do you hope the legacy will be? I hope the legacy instantly, I hope the legacy will be that people have seen it. Three things. People have seen it. People have got a little annoyed about it because where is this thing, where's this thing been? Why haven't we heard about it? And so on. Why has it been kept down? And then the third thing is, do you know, thanks to this, seeing that film, we put pressure on and people started using it and, and their lives were saved. It was a huge game changer for the drug addiction industry. Huge chain, game changer to addiction. And if this film, in a small way, can kickstart, like the blue touch paper, call it what you want, to get people to say, come on, folks, come on, your representatives in Washington, come on, Mr. Mayor, anyone, come on, the press, do your job. Why isn't this being looked at more? That would be my joy of joys, to think that people's lives have been saved because this film kicked off the questions and people followed it through. Awesome. Norman, I want to thank you for your time and uh, your insight and your passion for this cause. Um, It's amazing the film that you put together. It's a tremendous story. And uh, like we talked last time, I I love the way that uh, you ended it with David, the uh, participant who who didn't make it. Um, I felt like, like that was very poignant and it made a really good point. It was important to give him his voice and it's, That's the sort of thing that lives with you all your life, uh, as a filmmaker in particular. 
and uh, I dedicated the film to David. Um, he did make it through, but he left the, the, uh, the treatment, as you know, and then went back to drugs. Um, the rest is not just history. The rest is on record as part of the story. So what have we learned? We learned little-known neuroelectric therapy, or NET, has been around for over 46 years and helped rock stars such as Eric Clapton and Keith Richards detox and stop craving their drugs of choice within 10 days. We learned that while dealing with the individual psychological, social, and spiritual needs is fundamental to long-term recovery, it's rarely possible without first conquering the neurological blockages which produce strong cravings, anxiety, sleep disturbance, and flashbacks. And it can take 18 months or more for the brain to stabilize. With NET, that time is reduced to 7 to 10 days. And we also learned that while NET is little known in the U.S., it's been safely practiced in Europe with promising results for over 40 years. Last week, the Washington Post reported that nationwide, federal and local officials are seeing alarming spikes in drug overdose a hidden epidemic within the coronavirus pandemic. Emerging evidence suggests that continued isolation, economic devastation, and disruption to the drug trade in recent months are fueling this surge. Overdoses were up 42% in May alone. Isn't it time to pull out all stops and try any treatment option that could save more lives? It's projected that 75,000 additional lives will be lost to alcohol and drug overdose because of the pandemic. Why not try NET now? What do we have to lose? I'd like to thank my guests, Mark LaPalm, CEO of the Isaiah House in Louisville, Kentucky, Robert Capley, one of the five participants in the NET treatment study, Matt LaRocco, treatment specialist and doubter turned believer in NET, and finally, Norman Stone, the producer of The Final Fix. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you.